0: So the power struggle is over. The Leafs get a new GM. The Penguins get the old one. And all is good. And Succession gets Tom. That's all happened in the last week in the comparisons of the power struggle among sports. And I'm far from Tony Montana or anything Scarface. But everyone knows the line from the movie. First you get the money, then you get the power. And what's interesting, what I've learned and I feel we've all learned through this whole mess, is money's always there, always available. You could always get more. Money multiplies. Need some money. I finished it. Need some more money. Here's a little more money. But power's different. Power is exactly the same size at all times. So if you want more, it only means someone else gets less. And that was the main difference with what's happened here. I'm Mike Gentile, along with Jesse Rubinoff. This is the fan drive time. Sportsnet five ninety, the fan. Gentili Rubinoff, it's the fan drive time. Ben Ennis is away. He will be back on Monday. So you're stuck with us for the next two hours of scintillating sports talk. Well, uh, we're going to be getting a lot more
1: uh, life lessons from you. I, I feel like I'm sitting with the Philosopher King. That was beautiful off the Did that top. make sense to it you? It made a lot of sense. But is, is that the number one quote from Scarface? That's what well, I know. it's like. Because the, there's, a, there's a bunch you can
0: go at. Yeah, there. the actual quote is first you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the power, then you get the women. Say, like hello, to called, say hello to yeah. my little friend. Say hello to my little friend. But it's interesting because it's, it's um, money and power. So that, that's kind of, as we wrap up the week, NBA Finals, Stanley Cup starts tomorrow. Still got the Jays. Yeah. The Raptors don't have a coach, and they're the last team not to have one. In the whole league, that's right. In the right. whole league. Yep. And then, you know, like the big stuff from this week is the tree-living Dubas thing. Coming to a head, and as I heard Greg Wachinski say earlier today, because he used to work in PR, Nothing is by accident. Mm-hmm. And that Dubis presser yesterday, right literally after the Leafs did theirs, was well-timed.
1: So, yeah, obviously there's a ton of irony in there. Do you, do you really think that there was something going on there on the Penguin side of things that they wanted to upstage the Toronto Maple Leafs in a sense and have Dubis go immediately following Brad Living or just... I
0: don't know if it's upstage undercut, but put it this way. It's not done in total coincidence. Mm-hmm. Like, it's more believable to me that it was thought about than that it was not thought about at all, right? I'm just stunned not by how quickly, deal, no. But it just it, but it made for a very entertaining day.
1: I just find it fascinating when I look at these two moves and the end of the season came very quickly and I think abruptly for a lot of Toronto Maple Leafs fans. But I look at how quickly all this transpired. Obviously a very important part of the NHL year, calendar year, July 1st coming up, the draft coming up, which are major, major points of the season for general managers. But I look at this, I think about where we are. This is... This is basically two weeks removed from when Kyle Dubas left. And we heard the quote during his press conference saying, you're not going to see me anywhere else. It's either Toronto or Mm -hmm. nowhere else. And yet there he sat up and said, you know what? Maybe I was a little bit too honest in my press conference, my last press conference in Toronto.
0: Let me ask you about that because his point there was, and he was right. He's like, you're not going to see me turn up anywhere else, meaning he's going to leave the Leafs and join another team. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, I have no issue with it. Which is not what he did. He was fired. Mm-hmm. And then after he got fired, I don't I was so mad. Was like, like, what's he supposed to do? What did you want the guy to do? Like, <laughs> retire? Exactly He's right. He's younger. <laughs> He's young. He's, uh, He's 37. 37. Like, what did you want the guy,
1: like, not get a job? I think what they wanted was him not to say that. You and know, in hindsight, he, he said, you heard him say, maybe I was a little bit too honest in my press conference. And that's probably some of what he's alluding to there. He probably should not have said, I won't go anywhere else because it doesn't look great. But you're 100% right. The
0: guy's 37 years old. Of course, he's going to go get another job. People took it so personal. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, and, and and if they wanted him that bad, they should be mad at Shanahan for firing the guy. They're not mad at Shanahan. They're mad at Dubis." who didn't leave on his own, he was fired. There are a lot of people mad at so, Shane. No so it's doubt. almost like, did you even want the guy back or not? Mm-hmm. It was just very interesting. Like, there was the family part that, you know, that everyone kind of ran with for two weeks. And then there was the, I'm not going to show up. And he was, you know, people, you know, you know I calling like, him a fraud and that sort of thing. Listen, at the end of the day, the Leafs wanted him back. He wanted to be back. And they just couldn't come to terms. Like, it's actually quite simple. Regardless of the timeline Regardless of the family, regardless of the stress, that's what happened. They just couldn't come to terms. Totally. And what did he do? Like sometimes honesty or sometimes when someone does or says something that's so different and away from the norm, we don't know how to take it. But he did a couple things that we all wish we could do. And that is ask for more, demand more from yourself, and you never know where you're going to end up.
1: It's just so interesting where he did end up now because you look at the Pittsburgh Penguin situation, yes, from a... Age standpoint, things are significantly different than the Toronto Maple Leafs. And from a championship standpoint, things are different from the Toronto Maple Leafs as well, obviously, with the, the Penguins and their recent cups. But you look at their their core, and Kyle Dubas is going to be forced to do basically the exact same thing in Pittsburgh as he's been trying to do in Toronto for all of those years. And that's supplement. Find a way to supplement the core players. You have the Sid, Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang. You still have those guys. But he's got to find a way to win. So in a weird roundabout way, this is probably the most familiar job that he could have taken because he goes somewhere where he's had experience trying to do this exact same thing over the last number of years. So it is an interesting landing spot uh, for Kyle Dubas, for sure.
0: We should tell you in our next segment, Sean Gentile from The Athletic will join us, Pittsburgh-based. Arash Madani's in Denver covering the NBA Finals and Julia Kreutz, MLB.com. Rounds out the show at 4.30. We get to some Jays later. Now, what did you make? So we'll stick with Dubas for a minute, and then Mm -hmm. um, we'll move on to that in the next segment. But he went in for, or it looked like they were interested in him for the GM job, Mm -hmm. and he walked out the president. You know, I thought the timing was interesting because I don't know if you saw this reporting, and it's not shocking. It's happened before. Sometimes new ownership comes in, and they don't have a lot of experience in hockey. And they, so the report was that the NHL was helping the Fenway group
2: mm-hmm.
0: recruit who they should have as a president. So late last week, the story was Dubis was offered the job that they would do the GM first, president second. So they purposely wanted to go in that order and that the GM would maybe have a role in hiring the president. Mm-hmm. And then the league was going to help them out. So I wonder if Dubas went in there and he saw a very interesting opening where, like, these guys here don't have a lot of hockey experience. So I'm going to talk them up and actually take the other job. You noticed? The- which, is, which is exactly what happened. Uh, it's 100% what happened. And I, I think back to um,
1: Theo Epstein was the general manager of the Boston Red Sox when yeah. they broke the curse. And you think about the, the Fenway Sports Group and the association with, obviously, the Red Sox. And it's a forward-looking, young, dynamic general manager. So I couldn't help but make that parallel I'm sitting there listening to the press conference and and thinking about the ownership. But I just thought, uh, you know, that was really fascinating to me, just the, the, the sort of parallels and what they're looking for. And I, I think you're probably right. They probably needed some help. And I, I, when I look at what his role is now, the, the president of hockey operations, that's a lot of decision-making power. And one of the things that Dubis. It has now been reported and, and come out that one of the issues that he had with Shanahan was he wanted more autonomy. And now being the president of hockey operations in Pittsburgh, is he going to afford the general manager that he hires the level
0: of autonomy that he would have wanted as a general manager in Toronto? Well, there's like, a juicy rumor that Jason Spezza is going to go with him. There. Not, I don't know if he's going to be the GM assistant, mm-hmm. but there, there was something speculated about that. And if that was the case, it would make sense because Kyle's running the team. That means the GM would sort of be a GM in training, kind of learning on the job. Mm-hmm. But he'd be overseeing it all, which is exactly the situation he got away from here. But what's funny is I go back to the start of the show with the, if you want more power, someone has to have less. It's like a tug of war. Like yeah. he no, like can't duplicate power like you can money. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny, Shanahan ultimately did not want to relinquish some of that power. And it's okay that he did that, but it's not okay for some people that Dubas wanted the same thing. Like he just wanted the same thing. Like the, the, there's there's nothing wrong with that.
1: No, and, and I'm curious. The, one of the questions that came out of the True Living press conference was was about that and about the autonomy struggle. And I just wonder what kind of a relationship is Shanahan and Brad true living going to have Is Shanahan going to afford true living a little bit more autonomy because he happens to have been around the block a little bit longer than mm-hmm. Kyle Dubas and in different uh, NHL situations, obviously starting with Arizona and then going to Calgary, he's been in the front office for a lot longer. So yesterday Shanahan said that process is going to be and continue to be collaborative. But I just wonder, this is, it's just so fascinating to me and it's more, it's, it's less about hockey front offices. And I think Your your point, you did an excellent job of of saying this in the cold open. It's people. It's just people and their feelings and emotions and ego. And all of that comes into play when you're talking about the power dynamic. It's almost like there might be too many jobs in the front. Like, Do they need – if Kyle Dupes is going to go be the president of hockey operations in Pittsburgh, do they also need a GM? People were saying – Brendan Shanahan should just be the GM because if he's the one calling the shots, why don't you just make him the GM? Well, then there's
0: assistant general manager, assistant to the general manager, and then there's my ultimate dream job. What's that? The ultimate dream job, aside of like being on the air on mm. the fan, like we are doing right yeah, this, now. Yeah, this is yeah. The actual dream job is consultant. <laughs> I
1: don't you know just where for money? What,
0: they're the best. I don't know how they pull it know. I don't know what consultants do. I know that no they offense get paid, to any consultants out there, and I just, then they I just could they could Homer Simpson. Back into the bushes if something right. goes wrong. But, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong. A consultant is just basically like an expert
1: on something. You come in, you fix, you consult. fix the situation. You, you consult. Okay. Right? So, yeah. So, Listen, you probably consult. You, and you don't up.
0: even know you're consulting. <laughs> I'm consulting right now. Someone's like, hey, should I get a fireplace? You're thinking like, <laughs> yeah, it might be a good move for you. Why not? And then something happens to the house. You're like, well, it's not my house. Yeah, I love it. I, me- I gave him a little advice. Well, speak of the analogy <laughs> stuff. So, like. Succession, you're a big fan of the oh show. Oh my goodness, just How could you not be honest? It felt like Shanahan was like Lucas Matson. <laughs> and Kyle Dubis was I don't the know shiv. if that's giving Shanahan credit or not. No, he's he he's was running of a the wild show. card. No, no, but Shanahan in terms of the guy running the show. Yes. And then mm. Dubis was kind of like Shiv, which was like a uh, smart, point, but you uh, know, maybe for them a little too aggressive. Talk too much. Right, and then I was like, eh, I actually don't need all those ideas. I just need someone else. And like Tree Living comes in, and he's perfect. Because here, here, here's the funny thing: So Tree Living's Tom. Are yeah, technically he's he's Tom mm-hmm. Wibbscan. So are the okay? So the Penguins are better. Yeah, right, because they were a, a, just a complete disaster with what happened at for the, the first end. time in a really long time. They right? made playoffs a playoff number of years in a row. Dubis is better today. Yep. You you would assume that. Are the Leafs better now than they were a few weeks ago? Are they better now than they were going into last season? I think they're in management wise.
1: Essentially the exact same spot if not a little bit yeah. worse because there's a lack of continuity.
0: I think they're okay. And this is why the point of everyone getting so nuts about this story every we're all replaceable. Every hey, everybody is. So and so is a great GM, there's another one around the corner. Mm-hmm. Same with the coach, same with the president at the end of the day, it's fine. Just a different look. For me, I, you know, I was more against the process and how it turned out this way. I thought on X's and O's and on performance, it was probably time for a new vision yeah. and a new direction of the team. I just didn't like the way that they went around it, the way Shanahan put that timeline around, which kind of made it seem like Dubis left just for money and that he kind of, like, promised he'd be back and then pulled it at the last minute. Nothing was signed. No. So if you, if you don't have it signed, you don't have it. No. You don't have it. So that's how that went. I
1: didn't, out. yeah, I, I didn't take offense. I think we talked about it last time we were on together. We didn't, Neither of us really took offense to Kyle Dubas asking for more money at the time. It seems like a natural thing for yeah. someone to do. I, I know that if you have a framework for a deal, you kind of go back on it by asking for more money. So mm-hmm. there's that aspect, and clearly Shanahan was offended by that. But he's got his man now, and you heard immediately. You When, when Shanahan said he wanted someone with experience, it's like Brad Living had the job, Living. Yeah. Had the job immediately. Think like that was that was his job to lose. And, and I think they casually interviewed a bunch of other candidates. But I, I can't sit here honestly and say that the, the second he uttered the word experience in his press conference, Brad Tree Living was available. You knew that he was going to be the next general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Is just a matter of time.
0: Got a text here. Assistant to the traveling secretary is another great job. <laughs> That's amazing. The old Costanza job with the Yankees. Five ninety. Five ninety. If you want to send your texts during the show. So plenty to discuss with hockey. We'll get to the cup finals in a bit. We'll get to the NBA finals in a bit, but here's some other Toronto news to throw your way today. Oh yeah. So Frank Vogel becomes the head coach of the Phoenix Suns. So Monty Williams gets a boatload to go to Detroit. Doc Rivers pulls out of the Suns gig. Vogel gets it. Here we are. The Toronto Raptors are the only team without a coach. They are at the end of the line in this coaching search this off season surprise? I don't not?
1: think I don't think that's really much of a surprise. I look at the jobs that were available. Obviously, with Nick Nurse going to Philadelphia, Philadelphia was a, a premier job. Phoenix Suns, obviously a premier job. And, and congratulations to Frank Vogel for locking that one in. But you look at the jobs that were available and and you knew that this was going to be a long drawn out process. And I think Messiah Jerry is is clinical and surgical in who he wants to select As the next head coach, he he is a process-oriented person. And you look at the track record of of coaches who have stuck around for a long time in this city. Dwayne Casey lasted a very long time. Nick Nurse lasted a pretty long time, included a championship. And I think everyone was sort of under the assumption that he wasn't going to be back this season. So now you you get into a situation here where I don't think they were looking at any of the guys that were now selected to be head coaches elsewhere. Like, I think their candidates mm-hmm. have always been reportedly sort of the, the Sergio Scariolos, the Steve Nash's, the J.J. Reddick's, and they've never really deviated from that. We haven't heard the name Doc Rivers come up. We didn't really hear Frank Vogel associated. The one that is now elsewhere is Monty Williams, but mm-hmm. that was sort of light, and I don't know how much... How deep they looked into that, and I'm not sure they're
0: going to give him the money. The Pistons, the
1: amount of money that Monty Williams got is just sorry. How many rings does Monty Williams have? I I lost count at zero. Yeah, (laughs) but yet he's he's handsomely rewarded. Gets a buyout from the Suns and then signs another lucrative deal. He
0: could have sat for three better than a consultant, dude. You know what? Sorry, consultant is (laughs) too. Monty Williams is number one in terms no, of the No, but the shot. NBA
1: head coach is very stressful. Like, <laughs> a, you know, a lot of them, you can, they wear it on the sidelines. It looks like he, a tough gig.
0: He could have sat for three years, 21 mil. Yeah. That's what he was owed.
1: I mean, pers- personally, yeah. I'd probably take that route.
0: Three years, $21 million. Just sit and do nothing. No, I, I, but Get on the golf course. It's funny, but not everyone's built that way. Like, yeah. some people could do it, and yeah. they could pick their spots and wait. Whereas, if you talk to people... In the business about going back to Dubis for a minute, mm-hmm. this is not a guy that was going to sit up and wait. No. People keep, kept talking about the Ottawa Senators like that job was vacant. It's not. The, the ownership change hasn't even happened. Then they got to make changes. So we're looking at at least a year, mm-hmm. maybe more. So it made sense for a guy that doesn't want to wait. And he did mention that in his presser that he, uh, if he's going to move the family, do it now, not later when they're too entrenched. Yeah. And here we've, we've gone back to Dubas again. <laughs> Every time I try to steer one way, we steer right back into the same
1: whirlpool. Let's get back to, let's get back to the Raptors. So you're looking at those candidates. Yeah,
0: Scariolo, Jordi Fernandez from the Kings. Those are two of the
1: I think finalists. What you're running into here is sort of a question of what direction do you want to take the team? Do you want to start completely fresh? Or do you want to have someone who's been around the organization for some time in Scarriolo? he coached in, uh, in Italy this past year, but he was with the team for a number of years as an assistant. And, and that's the decision that you're going to have to make because sometimes it helps to have continuity, but I'm not always necessarily a fan of taking an assistant coach. And Adrian Griffin's another one that was an assistant with the Raptors and got hired to be a head coach mm-hmm. elsewhere. I'm not always a fan of taking an assistant coach and putting them into the role of head coach because oftentimes those voices are stale. Yes, you assume more responsibility, and you're the one in the locker room talking now, so th- there is a bit of a different feel. But I also think you have the relationship with the players, and who knows, maybe the assistant coach's message has been stale. Maybe when you control, we know Nick Nurse often controlled the offense when he was assistant coach here. Maybe players were sick of hearing about the offense when he became head coach, and that shortened the amount of time that he was able to be head coach. I just think you get stale quicker when you're assistant And then eventually become a head coach.
0: You know, teams don't always tell the truth. If you ask them, are you trying to win now? Are you trying to win in the next few years? Like, they'll get asked these questions and they'll give, you know, some analogies around it. But, you know, it's very, very difficult to be 100% precise and honest. I think teams speak through their hiring. Mm -hmm. Like, when they hire someone, they can't BS. So, if you want to win now and you hire a coach, it's obvious if it's someone who could win. Now, So, for example, the Sixers and Nick Nurse, what does that scream to you? They have to win an NBA Winning championship. Winning now. It's a yep. guy that's been a part of a championship. They're expected to go there. He's the guy, right? Frank Vogel's won a title with the Lakers. The Suns want to win now. They hire Frank Vogel. I think the Raptors are admitting now through, through this hiring is they're not looking for someone to just try to take this current roster and win with this current roster. This coach, whoever they are, are going to probably be younger or less experienced, and grow with this team for a bit of a long run here. So I think that's the message the Raptors are sending. They're not just trying to get someone because they think they could win very quick. I think they know it's going to be a while. So I think, I, I would say, pay pay attention to team hirings. Mm-hmm. And that tells you a lot of what they think of themselves.
1: When you look at the candidates, do you, like I said, so I said that I, I'm not always a fan of the assistant coach being hired in place of a head coach. Do you have a favorite when you look at the candidates that the Raptors are interviewing and perhaps thinking about because I I look at Steve Nash and obviously his time in in Brooklyn did not go well, but there he was managing massive egos and massive expectations and things. There wasn't always a chance that things were going to go sideways and they did go sideways. It would clearly be a different situation in Toronto. You don't necessarily have the star power in Toronto as you did in Brooklyn. I'm not sure you necessarily have uh, the ego situation and it feels like He's someone that can grow with the team. He's obviously a basketball icon in this country. And he feels to me like someone who deserves a second chance because that was a, a different situation in Brooklyn. And I, I'm intrigued by the, the possibility of having someone who has that sort of reputation in this country growing with the team, like you said, because that, that seems like where the Raptors are at. From
0: Nash or Redick, I just want someone that's coached. right? And, you know, you can get away if you're Steve Nash with a team with big stars, because they maybe don't need as much coaching. They can carry a lot of the team there. So the Brooklyn situation, even though it didn't work out, he didn't really have to carry that team on his shoulders. He had had to manage a lot of egos and it didn't work. Yeah. In Toronto, he's going to have to like build this team in which he has no experience in doing that. Right. So, I know. I think a lot of people are in love with Nash because he's Canadian. If he wasn't Canadian, I don't think there is a Canadian would. bias. There's if a his name was Steve bias. Nash
1: and he was, and he was American, I don't, I don't know if there had to be the but same But he'd be a great assistant coach, like an yeah.
0: assistant to the head coach or maybe another one of those consulting jobs. But I think he'd be great to be a part of the team, to be on the staff. That sort of thing would make sense. But to run the whole thing, I'm not sure. I I, I would rather, I don't know. I saw like a few videos of Jordy Fernandez there and he was, seems fantastic. I think to the Scariola thing, it's like maybe the Raptors had something in Griffin and they lost it,
3: mm-hmm. and there's
0: another assistant that was on the championship staff that would work. So that's, that's kind of the weird part of Nash. I think people are kind of um, colored by the fact that he's Canadian, and what's most concerning for me to kind of put a bow on the Nash thing is he was not up for any of those other jobs. Not one other of those jobs considered Steve Nash. I think that says a lot. In terms of his value and where he is. Probably. I do wonder if um, he was soured by his
1: experience in Brooklyn. And maybe, maybe if teams, maybe even if they did reach out, he said, you know, I'm only going to, I would only go to a Toronto situation. I only want to go back and coach in the country where I'm from. And maybe, maybe that's a situation. I, I have no idea. I, I'm making that up. But that, that's a possibility to me.
0: A couple of minutes left here. Okay. Blue Jays uh, facing the Mets. They're on the road. Chris Bassett against his former team. You know, baseball's very tough to cover and analyze day-to-day because you will drown. It's a long, a long roller coaster Season. Oh, yeah. It really is. So I kind of feel like with baseball, especially with the Jays, you got to look at it almost like month-to-month. So April was, like, pretty good. May was not good. <laughs> at all. And now June is sort of a fresh start. So I'm going to ask you the question that I'm going to ask Julia Kreutz later. As you assess the team, where are we at with this team right now as we head into June?
1: I actually think they're in a better spot than maybe most people do. You look at the standings and obviously not where you want to be. This is a team that wanted to compete for a division title, and that's not gone, but it Mm. is June 2nd, and they are not in a good spot when it comes to winning the division. The Rays and Orioles and even the Yankees playing some really good baseball. But I look, obviously the team is not without Some issues, but I feel like they're taking baby steps in the right direction. Kevin Gossman continues to mow down hitters at just a ridiculous rate. Chris Bassett, I know he didn't have a good start in his last outing, but he's been very solid for the duration of the season. Jose Barrios has pitched well. Uh, Kikuchi's fallen off a little bit here. That leaves us with with one obvious issue in the starting rotation. I know we're going to dive a little deeper into this uh, in a little bit. But that's Alec Manoa, and the Jays have to figure out what to do here because you've put put yourself behind the eight ball in terms of wins. Every win counts. We've talked about this at length now because it has been a number of years where the Jays have been so close to a playoff position, couldn't break through, and people say that's why the games in April and May mean the same thing as the games in September, and that's true. So you have to figure out if running Alec Manoa out there every single fifth day is doing your team more damage
0: than good? And, well, and there you have other depth, options? That's the, the issue. The lack of depth is forcing him out there. Oh, so, that's exactly so, what it so is. So there's two things, positive, negative. The, the negative is there's a lack of depth, a lack of someone else that could do that job. Like, who are you going to call? L- right? Literally. The flip side is because the other four starters have been so good – Or at least respectable. Like Brios and Kikuchi haven't killed you. Like they've, they've, Brios has been excellent. They've held their own. If anything, they've like uh, Brios has been pretty, pretty damn good. Because of that, it's allowed them Mm -hmm. to keep trekking Manoa out there. But if if they were to fall apart, you couldn't get away with that. So so I think he honestly is. I feel I could be wrong. He's a start or two away from a major change, whether it's a demotion to the bullpen, whether it's going going down to AAA or something, yeah. I kind of feel he's like a start or two away. For, like, you, you can't just wait for this to turn. First of all, I feel bad for him.
1: Like, just hearing him after every start and seeing yeah. the expression, and, and this has got to be tough for someone who was had a very accelerated path to the major leagues. Like, nobody was thinking that he was going to be, number one, in the majors when he came here, and secondly, as good as he was, an no. all-star and a no, finalist. No growing pains. Two
0: years of zero growing pains with
1: this guy. Right. So nobody nobody thought that he was going to be where he was last year. And this kind of thing happens. Like, we've, we saw it with the late Roy Halliday, was sent down all the way to A-ball. We've seen it before in the majors. It seems with Manoa that there's obviously something mechanical that's wrong here. Like, this is not just like, oh, his numbers are the same. His pitching's the same. His slider's the same. His fastball's the same. It's not. It's not. The velocity's down. His slider's the second worst pitch in all of baseball. So it's not it's
0: not good enough. You got to figure out what to do. When we come back, Sean Gentile from The Athletic, he covers the Pittsburgh Penguins. We'll talk to him about that, about Dubas, about the Stanley Cup final. And you know what? We all turned our nose at these non-traditional hockey markets, right? From Vegas to Carolina to Tampa, Florida. But they're the ones that are doing it right. They're actually getting to the finals. So maybe there's something <laughs> we could learn From them, all that's still ahead. Gentili Rubinoff, this is the Fan Drive Time. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out
4: there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: drive time Sportsnet 590 the fan mike gentile jesse rubinoff here with you till 5 p.m then blair barker from 5 to 7 take you into jay's mats bassett versus his former team tonight here on the fan and on Sportsnet. starting tomorrow night the stanley cup finals like many people predicted vegas and florida very <laughs> mean, no, predictable literally not finals. a single person on earth People didn't even predict that in the conference finals. No, let alone at the beginning. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Cause uh, the following guest has been in Vegas for parts of the playoffs. So we got to take on that, but we got to dig a little more dirt in Pittsburgh. And with that, he's no cousin. Sean Gentili joins us. <laughs> Jesse, you got to change that. your name. Sean, how are you?
2: I don't know if you can say that we're not related. I got, I have, like, I have two L's in my last name, but there was one a few generations ago. Someone added an L to try to stop it from getting mispronounced. So I wouldn't be so quick to say that there's no relation here. Well, you I'm one L. Know.
0: You're two L's. Jesse, yep. you're going to be Gentilly with three L's. That's totally fine. <laughs> so That's someone's to go on Ancestry. Yeah, you
1: got to go on Ancestry and figure this out Like some, by the time we're done this segment. All fair.
0: That's it. Ancestry.com. The next <laughs> time Sean's on our show, is he related to the producer? We are going to reveal those answers. But we won't do it right now. We'll do it like Maury Povich style. What do you think, Sean? <laughs>
2: That's perfect. Yeah, bring out the uh, the Manila envelope and yeah, to the whole the whole Maury thing. That sounds great.
0: All right. So Dubis gets uh, unpackaged and unveiled yesterday in Pittsburgh. With uh, I, don't, I don't know if you want to say suspicious timing, but like right after the Leafs unveiled Tree Living. I wanted you just for context to help paint the picture so that we here in Toronto understand what things are like in Pittsburgh. Can you give us a little insight, maybe some dirt on how the previous era ended the disaster that was the Burke Hextall era, which explains what the team was really looking for and hoping to get in Kyle Dubas.
2: Well, first off, I want to say that, and I, I know this sounds crazy, but it's coming kind of like it's coming from a person I trust. I think the timing of the press conferences yesterday was a, was a, an unfortunate coincidence for the Leafs. Honestly, there were, there were, owners from FSG who had a fly in from Boston and they were trying to get, get, get all those people together, typical rich person kind of thing. And I, I, I truly don't think it was de- a deliberate move, which shocked me as, as uh, as, as much as you could, which is, which is crazy. Um, yeah, you know what? I think everyone here was impressed by Kyle Dubis <laughs> at the press conference. That's the, that's the overall vibe. I think from people, Maybe who aren't as familiar with his work or aren't as fam- they aren't as familiar with his time in in Toronto as maybe folks like you and me and, and and everyone else are I think they I think they saw you know a level of polish and a level of sincerity there that uh that was impressive and i and I think that was sort of my my first big takeaway was you know this was a press conference that he probably needed to win I think people wanted to see you know again that level of commitment and excitement. Uh, in in uh, in sincerity, which I which frankly I, I don't think people ever got from the Hextall Burke administration going back a couple years, right? They they sort of set kind of an odd tone with the way they uh, they they approached the initial pressers here, and I I think Dubis is a is a 180 degree turn at least is, as far as uh, the the day one stuff is concerned.
1: Sean, the Penguins obviously had a, a pretty exhaustive search in, in looking for a, a president and a GM um, interviewed at least ten candidates, but Do you think they always sort of had an eye on what was happening in Toronto? And if Dubas became available, obviously they were going to jump on that. Was he always sort of the guy in their mind?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a reason that we didn't see the search really ramp up until uh, the Leafs got that first round victory over over Tampa Bay. I think there was, you know, a wait and see approach early on with the Penguin search uh, because, you know, what didn't take a genius to connect the dots? you know, it, it'd it be, it'd be a lot more likely for Kyle Dubas to be available if things didn't uh, go, go their way in, in the first round. Right. But then things change. Obviously we like all of exhausted that whole, that, that whole storyline, but they, they were pretty far down the road, I think with the rest of their search. And then they put it on hold <laughs> once, once, uh, once, you know, everything really hit the fan with uh with the Maple Leaf. So, yeah, for sure, he was the guy they wanted. They were willing to wait, and then they were willing to kind of put everything on pause to resume uh, the courtship whenever he actually did, you know, uh, b- become available a couple weeks ago.
0: We're on the line with Sean Gentile from The Athletic based in Pittsburgh. Long-lost cousin. Long-lost cousin. <laughs> and you finally took us uh, to be on a radio show to finally reconnect. So it's it's been great. I missed you. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. give me the list of some names that you think Dubas is going to look at for GM and is Jason Spezza on that list for you?
2: The Spezza situation is funny. I, I think everybody, you know, understandably connected those dots yesterday whenever Dubas was announced as president hockey operations and said, you know, that the plan is eventually to, to hire a general manager. But, you know, from, uh, from, from what coming from people smarter than me over the last, over the last couple of days, I think he makes more sense, maybe as, a, as an AGM, not necessarily making the jump from a special advisor to uh, to a general manager. Whenever uh, whenever Dubis gets around to making that hire, sometime sometime in July, um, I think all the usual suspects, like all the, all the Leafs associated people, whether it's whether it's Brandon Pridham, whether it's you know anybody anybody on on that end of things, um, something something Dubis said yesterday too. Uh, which I thought was interesting, was when he was asked what he would look for in a GM whenever he got around to make a hire, he specifically said it'd be great to hire, make a progressive hire, hire a progressive candidate. Mm-hmm. That's kind of in line with, with what the FSG people said about the search early on. They were also very specifically, like, it took pains to say, like, Wh- whichever man or woman we hire in this job, we'll, we'll do da-da-da-da-da. So I, I think uh, if and when Dubis does make that GM hire, I, I I think you need to take a close look at some of the women uh, assistant general managers around the league. I think people like Kate, Kate Madigan in, in New Jersey, maybe Megan Duggan in, in in New Jersey, folks like that. I think are going to have you know a a, re- a real chance at securing this job just because of the way uh, the Penguins hockey ops structure seems to seems to be uh, unfolding and and the things Dubis and FSG have said about you know, the people that they want to install
1: in that hole. Kyle's kind of walking into a a similar situation here from a roster construction standpoint. Obviously, uh, I made the point in the first block, uh, difference in championships clearly between Pittsburgh and Toronto and differences uh, in age, but there is the core, and Kyle Dubas is going to have to find a way to supplement that core uh, for as long as they're going to be around, whether it's a year or the next two years or whatever it is. He said yesterday he wanted to bet on the course. what are the things that Kyle Dubas is going to have to address in the next little while?
2: Well, the cupboards bare as far as support players and, and potential prospects are concerned. that's where Hexdall or the Hexdall-Barrick administration really, really fell short. They had three different cracks at it at the trade in, in two separate off seasons and just continually failed to, you know, build out any sustainable uh, third or fourth line. Right. I, so and I know that, you know, every GM has a spotty track record there. There's wins, there's losses when you're trying to add role players and in and, and, uh, and win on the margins. Uh, but Hextall was uncommonly bad at that. So if you look at some of the things that Dubis has done in the past, I know that it wasn't all hits in, in Toronto, but things would go a big way or it it would go a long ways uh, to ultimate success there, honestly, if you could just get a, a, a two let, – let's say two role-playing forwards who are – who are generally competent because that's <laughs> somewhere that Hexall that, Hex fell short, honestly. And, and when you look at the production that Pittsburgh got from Sidney Crosby last year, he had 93 points in 82 games. Getting Malkin was healthy, too. Against the odds, these guys are in their mid-30s and healthy and productive, right? That's, I think that, was a, that should be the single most frustrating thing, it certainly is for, for Penguins fans, about the way that last year went, was that the big guys were great. It was it was along the margins that they fell short, and, and along the margins that Hextall really did fail. So I, I think those are the spots where where Dubis can, you know, really make hay and really make an, an early difference uh, with with the on ice product for next season.
0: Sean Gentile with us from the Athletic. It's funny I'm thinking about Dubis. Like the two things, he went from a Stanley Cup is a need to have to sort of a nice to have because mm-hmm. all the respect. As much as they want to win quickly, they got three with the group, so it's it's not like sixty seven. And then the other thing that I just thought about was like that he must be salivating that he hasn't had for a while is a little thing called cap space. I wonder mm-hmm. how creative he's going to... So what do you think the most creative thing is that he can do with all that space?
2: <laughs> most creative thing he can do is get some more. I, I think there's a lot of... He'd win a lot of fans in this city and I think around the team if he could find some way to make Mikhail Gramlin disappear, right? He Gramlin was like... That was Ron Hextall's Waterloo. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was the the big trade deadline ad that, that he made. And it was received so poorly that, you know, people are chanting fire Hextall in, in the rink here. And that was sort of the the, the kind of uh, Rubicon tipping point sort of moment for him. And Mikhail Granlin still makes five. He's going to make $5 million for each of the next two years. So I think people are looking at that cap space. Pittsburgh's got more than $20 million projected for uh, – for, for next season and saying, you know what, you, you know, it would be great 24 or, uh, or or 25 million, but no, Dubas made a point to, he made a point yesterday too, during, uh, during his introductory press conference to say like, you know, uh, we basically point out and say like, Hey, if, if we want to make additions here, we could add another top six piece. We could, mm-hmm. you know, maybe find a, a bigger ticket player because, you know, for sure that's, that's something that, you know, he's, uh, it's been in short supply for, for the teams he's managed over the last few years.
1: Sean, when, when Mike Babcock was let go from Toronto, Kyle Dubas brought in uh, someone he would worked with in the AHL and Sheldon Keefe, a friend of his, uh, Mike Sullivan obviously has uh, a ton of pedigree and he's a very powerful coach when it comes to uh, sort of the power dynamic amongst NHL coaches. So how do you envision that power dynamic playing out between Dubas and Sullivan?
2: I think yesterday went about as well as it could have uh, for, for early returns on that relationship, right? Dubas made it. that was, this is the way it works. Those press conferences, right? The uh, folks get hired. There's certain talking points that they want to just fall back on and, and, and certain things that they want to stress. And I think the role of Mike Sullivan with, you know, the new administration was clearly a, a point that, that Dubas wanted to make over and over and over again, right? He, he's he's a Mike Sullivan fan. And I and I think Mike Sullivan is uh, is a Kyle Dubas fan as well. Those guys, you know, I think they're they're closer uh, temperamentally maybe than than people realize. I I th- I think Sullivan is is a really smart, you know, it, you know, I don't want to I don't want to say an, an analytically, you know, an, an an analytics guy, but he's he's got an analytic mind. He's obsessive about you know the science behind. Uh, player motivation and team structure and, and all that. I think I think they're going to mesh better than maybe people uh, people anticipated. And there's certainly a, a pretty high level of uh, of respect between the two of them because Sullivan did a press conference with his own today and just you know phrased Dubas up and down and said said they're really looking forward to working each other. And I don't know, I'm I'm inclined to believe him at this point.
0: Sean Gentile is on with us from the Athletic. Gotta get a quick word for me on the Stanley Cup Final starting tomorrow with Game One. The one theme with this Cup Finals for me is just um, how quick things could change. From a Vegas standpoint, they quickly got into not one, but now their second Cup Final. That's kind of a cool story. And then with Florida, mm-hmm. you know, they only added Matthew Kachuk this year. They only added Paul Maurice this year and, and how quickly they got to the finals. What's, what's your favorite storyline to follow uh, as, as this uh, finals gets started?
2: I, I love the Sergey Bobrovsky storyline. I mean, I think he's reason one, two, and three why things have pivoted so quickly for the Panthers, not just this season, but in the last month or the last six weeks. The guy, you know, for the first time in a few years has looked like he's almost worth the contract they signed him to. Him, that, that they signed him to coming out of Columbus a, a few years ago. He's, he's been unbelievable, otherworldly in, in net there. So I think, you know, that to me, that's, that's what the series rests on. Like whether whether he can continue doing it, whether Vegas, you know, with that pretty impressive forward depth that they have, can 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 find a way to crack it. You know, we we love what Matthew Kachuk's doing. That's a that's a great storyline. He's he's compelling personally. You score a bunch of overtime games. Like you you can't get enough credit. But man, Bobrovsky just uh, in terms of the pivot we've seen from him over the last month and just the, the level of play he's been able to hit is just remarkable stuff. So that's, that's the one I'm watching most closely for now.
0: Sean Gentile. Thanks for your time. We'll see you at the family reunion and I'll let you know in the group chat what, what we should both be bringing.
2: <laughs> Let's go. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll bring the macaroni salad. Let's make this oh, happen. Mike, G.
0: Right on. Thanks pal. Thanks, thanks Sean. You.
2: Take care. Yep.
0: There he is, Sean Gentili from The Athletic. Okay, who are you cheering for in the Stanley Cup Finals? I thought
1: you were going to ask me how
0: many Gentilis I think there are in the world. There are many, my friend. <laughs> there lot. are many.
1: Who am I cheering for? Yeah, you got to root for a team. I like the underdog story. Uh, I think the, there's something to be said You're about— going Panthers. The, uh, yeah, I'm going Panthers. I think there's, there's something to be said about having the underdog mentality and just where it's been able to carry the Florida Panthers. And like Sean said, the, Sergei Bobrovsky, I was a goalie growing up that was my position you were a goalie i was a got- goalie and i i know what it feels like this isn't happening very often but i know what it feels like to get in the zone and to make it to a cup final i don't know that at all <laughs> but when you get in the zone and you yes. feel like nobody can beat you like the puck literally feels or looks like a beach ball well, i guess not literally but figuratively and just you don't think anything's getting past you and i think obviously that's where sergey bobrovsky mm. is and as a as a fellow netminder, I can't help but appreciate that. And obviously, the the Matthew Kuchak story is just, he's got the clutch gene. That's what it is. He's got the clutch gene. And Vegas, in their own right, an incredible story. Seems like they've been knocking on the door every single season. They've been in existence. But Florida right now is just an incredible story. And it would be
0: good for hockey to have an eight seed, again, win the Cup. Let's go back to something you just mentioned. A few minutes away from a break, by the way. We're going to give away some tickets to the Canadian Open in a couple of minutes. So stay tuned for that. How were you taught in net? Were you like butterfly from day one? Did you learn the stand up routine? It's a great question. Uh, stand up routine cracking <laughs> jokes.
1: Yeah it, was, yeah, it was a funny goaltender. <laughs> right,
0: but but was it like butterfly right from the start? Because that really changed, and then it just took everyone over. Yeah, I wasn't good enough technically.
1: I was yeah. never able to. Uh, you know, what I would have liked to be like was Carey Price, just the yeah. effortless motion around the net, and I never could mimic that. Mm-hmm. My my favorite goalie, two goalies, grew up were Felix Potvin, I guess Kelly Rudy, and and. Curtis Joseph, too. Interesting. And I, I tried All to,
0: very different.
1: I tried to mimic my game after Cujo the most because I recognized pretty early that athleticism was going to be how I was going to have to find success. Yeah. And uh, obviously, I didn't make it into junior or anything, but I played at a high level growing up. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it was too hard for me, the technique. It's, hard, it's a hard position to play. And then mentally, too, that was, I think, something that separates. And you see it with, it with every athlete nowadays, but specifically with goalies. You get in a rut, or it's like a pitcher. You get in a rut. You're seeing it with Alec Manoa right now. It can be very hard to sort of dig yourself out of that situation. And uh, luckily for the Panthers and the Golden Knights, they do not have goaltenders in that spot because they are both in the zone, like I said. Well,
0: it's funny because the whole butterfly motion yeah. makes the target smaller. So, so I get it. You'd rather be hit in the chest than go through your legs. So you're always going, but, but it also makes the position almost harder to play because you're up, down, up, down, up, down. All the time. Like, you watch some highlights of, like, older games. The old stand up They just throw their bodies at you. They move around. Like, they only go down if they got to, like, stack the pads. Right. If they really need to. A, cl- a classic move that you, you literally never see anymore. You never see anymore. No. They stack the pads, and they have to be brown. Yeah. Reggie Lemelin. Pads. I was yeah. thinking of that sort of thing. No, it's, uh, no,
1: I, it's just, it's such a hard, I would love to have been able to play like carry Price. That was always my dream, but.
0: So he Shame. was, Wall was my it. goalie growing up, that, that was my favorite in terms pretty of good style. Goalie. <laughs> yeah. A pretty good goalie in terms of style. Like the one that you'll never mimic is Dominic Hasek. No, no. I, I mean, I don't think you wanted to, it wasn't even a style. It, it, it was
1: just kind of fly it, by the seat of your pants. It was like a hybrid from what used to be. And what became, or I mean, really it was his own style. I don't think any goalie coaches wanted you to learn mm-hmm.
0: Dominic Hashik's style of play, man, that run like 98 when they won the gold and they beat Canada,
3: mm-hmm.
0: he was as unstoppable as I've ever seen. By the way, Bobrovsky, did you know he has a higher goals against and the and save percentage than Aiden Hill? Like, Aiden Hill's been outstanding. He's been, he's been ridiculous. He's,
1: like, look at their goaltending situation all year. Like, you think about who their goalies were last year, where they started the season yeah. with, and now Aiden Hill is the goaltender that basically got them the entirety of the way to the Stanley Cup final. And really, everybody's talking about Bobrovsky, but like you said they they're basically neck and neck all postseason. I guess it's the name recognition and the amount of money that Sergei Bobrovsky makes. So the spotlight's on
0: him a little bit more, but well, looks like they're going to go blow for blow. It tells you, you know, we're going to be looking at a lot of two, one games. Yes. I don't know if that's the most later exciting, on in our uh, last call segment brought to you by bet rivers. we we'll do that at the end of the show. Some interesting breakdowns of terms of how many games you think is going to be played in the Stanley Cup finals from a sweep to seven. We'll give you those numbers. It's pretty interesting. In the meantime, what we're going to give away some tickets, Oakdale Golf and Country Club is getting set to host the best golfers in the world at this year's RBC Canadian Open June 6th to the 11th, and we have tickets to give away all week. To enter, all you have to do is tune
1: in to this week's episode of The Fan Drive Time, listen for the code word, then text the code word to
0: 590-590, convenient. Today's code word is Oakdale, text Oakdale to 590-590 right now to enter for your chance to win. Also back this
1: year is the RBC Music Concert Series featuring the Black Eyed Peas and Alanis
0: Morissette. we got more tickets to give away next week, but if you don't win with us, make sure you secure your tickets by visiting rbccanadianopen.ca. You ever gone to a uh, golf event? I went person? last year. I went last year. Fantastic! It was
1: it was so much fun, and I've I've uh, been fortunate enough to to play Oakdale in the past. Mm-hmm. Beautiful golf course, and I hear the rough right now is just unplayable. Like the, the pros will be okay because that's what they do. Yeah, but a couple of the members have played before the tournament, and you can't find the ball when it lands in the rough. You you literally cannot find it. People uh, are
0: losing balls. I can relate. In the rough. <laughs> sounds very relatable, K- Jesse. K- sounds you? like a just an annual <laughs> game of golf for me.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it seems like uh, possibly going to be a challenge, but, you know, the pros are so good,
0: so who knows? Boy, if you watch pros play, it really highlights just how terrible we all are. Oh, completely. Like, it's you a different set game. Stuff up on a green, and you just watch people. It's just like robots just landing it on there without any effort. It's Tell amazing. me
1: if you agree with me. One of the things that stuck out to me when I went to watch the, ter- the event last year was the sound that, the golf ball makes coming off the club of a pro is infinitely different than an amateur. Like you, you someone, it is so rare for an amateur golfer to hit the center of the club face. Mm -hmm. And these guys do it all the time and you can hear it when they do it. Like it is a different, funny to say
0: this. I remember being at a tournament with a couple of former NHLers that Mm -hmm. were like really good golfers. And it was just, I, I kept saying like, what was that? It was like a. Like, <laughs> yes. It was a sound that I never heard of. Exactly. Because ours is more like a thump and yeah. a clump, but it was just like a weird. It didn't even sound like metal. It was the only way to explain it was a sound you've never heard before. Right, right. We can't relate. And they're like, "That's oh, because that's how you're supposed to do it." Right. It's. And we just have no clue. They. Yeah. I. It's. Oh. I would love. I would love to go
1: watch pros play again because it's just. It's something that's so unattainable
0: <laughs> for the average,
1: the average one so of us. Jealous. So jealous. Yeah. When very. we
0: come back, Arash Medani, he's in Denver. He'll be with us. Game two. Kenny Okich and company go up two zip. They were pretty dominant last night. Gentili, Rubinoff, fan drive time. Sportsnet at 590 the fan.
4: Diving deep into the biggest stories in Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: SportsNet 590, The Fan, Mike Gentile, Jesse Rubinoff. This is The Fan Drive Time. One hour left, then Blair and Barker take you through to seven o'clock. And then it's Bassett versus the Mets on SportsNet 590, The Fan and SportsNet 1
1: tonight. Time flies in here. Right? Yeah. Just talking whatever we want to talk about. Sports, it's like, it's fun.
0: Totally. And there's a lot going on. We have the Leafs GM search happen, the Raptors at no coach. We got yeah. an NBA finals. We have the <laughs> Stanley Cup finals. So much happening. Jays. Uh so with that in mind, because they were it, it was a pretty dominant game one. Yeah. But on the scene there to take it all in is Arash Madani who's with us now. Hello, Arash.
3: How are we doing, boys?
0: Feeling good, feeling good. Uh I feel like the game was not close last night. The, the, the score was salvageable, but, you know, like Denver It's a good way to put it, yeah. Right? Yep. And so I'm watching the Spolstra game, and something sticks out to me. It was a quick little line that I said, that just really said so much. And I'm watching and I'm watching, and then I'm watching Arash's report. Arash then references the same line that I'm mentioning, and that is when Spolstra asked about Jokic said, he's one of one. That's that's just a wow statement. Hey, Arash?
3: Yeah, it really is. And because he's the most unique mismatch in the NBA, because not only can, can Jokic do everything, guys, but I think what's most impressive about about how he goes about it is that he doesn't force something that's not there. Mm-hmm. Like, look at last night. He had three shot attempts in the first half, five total shot attempts after the third quarter, and then you look down at the box score after you're like, "Well, must be a playoff game." The Joker's got himself another triple double. So, as difficult as he is to guard, he's as effective with the distribution of the basketball, passing the basketball, making this Denver offense go without scoring. And th- and at that point, yeah, you are one of one
1: you talk about one of one, and this guy is a a two-time MVP. You could make a strong case that Nikola Jokic could have had another one this season, a rash. He's already, I think, in the conversation as one of the best centers of all time, but what does an NBA championship do for Nikola Jokic's legacy?
3: Yeah, I mean, Jesse, I think nothing for the legacy because we can't even start talking about legacy yet. This dude's still in his 20s. Mm -hmm. I think what it does is It really elevates the resume to now put him in some conversations. You know, you can't start comparing him, no matter the fact that he just beat, you know, surpassed Wilt for most playoff triple doubles. You can't put him in in big conversations with Shaq, with Kareem, with Wilt until you have a couple, at least. Like, let's remember, Kareem Abdul Jabbar has six (laughs) rings, Shaq has multiple rings. What, does he have three? two with the late or four, uh, three with the Lakers, one, one in Miami. So you have to, to get entrance into the club, you need to have jewelry and you probably need a couple of those. So before we even think about legacy, it's more like, okay, you know, when you start knocking on that door, it better sound different because something's on your fingers.
0: You know, watching this guy, I'm like, please don't become the next Barkley or Clyde Drexler. Like, I, I, I don't want to ha- have a conversation with, like, he was amazing, but no ring. Like, I, I, I just, even if you get one, get that out of the way. Right. And uh, to Rash's point, elevates different kinds of conversations. I'm looking but at but let him. Let me or, stop you there, yeah, Mike. Go ahead. Mike yeah. Let
3: me stop you there. Because I thought there was something Spolster said on media day that really caught my eye. He said in the bubble when those dudes had nothing to do, right? Like the most you could do when you were in the bubble was go for a walk along the perimeter of Disney and along the perimeter of Disney, there was like a little pond. Some of them went fishing. Um, Besides that, there was nothing but ball. And Spolstra spoke with such reverence about the nuggets and how they went about it and the coaching staff. But remember that year in 2020, Denver got to the conference finals and that was Jamal Murray's coming out party. And Spolstra said after they lost in the finals to the Lakers, he, you know, him and his staff were saying, man, Denver's the team. Mm-hmm. Denver's the team that for multiple years is going to be right there. And Spolstra said, if Murray hadn't blown out his knee, which he did the next season, if Jamal hadn't gotten hurt, maybe we'd be talking about them as some kind of dynasty. And I thought that was really intriguing because, yes, The Joker, he's Batman, but he's got himself a Robin. And last night, our pal from Kitchener, Ontario, not only had 26, Mm -hmm. not only had double-digit assists, but the two of them became the first duo in in a game in the NBA finals to have better than 25 points, to have double-digit assists. The last to do it was Magic Johnson and James Worthy in 1987. So this is the level that we're talking about, not just of the Joker, but our, our own little Canadian and what these two have been able to do together.
1: Yeah, you, you mentioned Jamal Murray in the bubble and how it was his coming out party. There's there's absolutely no question about that. What is a, is it about Jamal Murray's ability to elevate in the postseason? Because if, if it was a, a one-off in the bubble, that'd be one thing. But now it's the bubble into a devastating knee injury, a year and a half recovery, and it seems like he's right back at that level of uh, elite basketball play that he was at in the bubble. What is it about his ability to rise to the occasion, Rash?
3: Well, he's just that good, Jesse. Like, and I just think it took a long time for him to get healthy, and they were patient with it, and they didn't rush him back. And I asked uh, Mike, Michael Malone about that yesterday, or a couple days ago, um, and he said, you know, there were flickers last season where we thought maybe – but we didn't want to rush it, and we didn't want it to happen too quickly, which, which is fine. And then he said, "Last summer is when Murray really kind of showed that he was he was there." This is not just a playoffs thing. I think we're just following the Nuggets now because it's the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're in they're in basketball obscurity here in Colorado. I think in reality, what you have here is the best one-two punch. It, that the NBA has had since Shaq and Kobe. And now in the playoffs, it's it's there for all of us to see.
0: And that was an off-air conversation we had, a rash. It was going to be my next question to Literally you. Literally two minutes ago. There was a lot of, like, the big threes in the NBA, but they're a throwback because they're a dynamic duo. And people compared yeah. them to, I've heard, you know, like, Stockton and Malone. And I'm like, no, I feel like they're like a modern-day Shaq and Kobe. They play different, but you got a big guy and you got a quick scorer and they could rotate which one dictates at what time, and it's impossible to stop the two of them. Well, and
3: think about what Jamal Murray's game is, okay? I In in at least one game in every series so far, he's attempted at least 10 threes. I think eight games in these playoffs, he's hit four or more threes. Yet, what did you get yesterday from Jamal? Only two three-point buckets. The rest was his mid-range game. Like the Nuggets are a throwback team that's willing to pull up from 15 to 18 feet. They're willing to distribute the basketball to anybody and everybody. Aaron Gordon had 12 in the first quarter yesterday. Uh, you know, Michael Porter Jr. can shoot it. They will They will take advantage. It, it is a very unselfish brand of basketball. And I thought Jamal made a really interesting point. He said the two teams that have had the best team chemistry are playing in these finals and you see it by the way, both of these teams go about it
1: on the other side, uh, the Miami heat. And we've heard so much about the heat culture. And obviously that comes from, I think the top down Pat Riley, Eric Spoelstra, but also Jimmy Butler, embodies that we remember back to the scrimmage with the Timberwolves. He played with the third stringers and beat the starters. Supposedly, it hasn't just been Jimmy Butler to get Miami to this point, but he has been the guy many times throughout the postseason a rash. He's always sort of had the winner label, even though he hasn't won one. So how cool would it be to actually see him solidify it?
3: Well, he's got to, and he's got to play a lot better than he did last night. Jesse. I mean, that's, that's first and foremost. And you know, Butler was the first to say it after the game. Uh, he was a minus 13. He he only scored 13. He was invisible in the first half. But Jimmy Buckets is why they're here. You know, Caleb barton has been a great story, sure. Um, you know, people in Toronto have their eye on Kyle Lowry, without a doubt. And it's a great story about all these undrafted free agents contributing. This is the Jimmy Butler-Bam Adebayo show. And Adebayo lived up to his end of the bargain last night. Butler didn't. And Jimmy said, okay, The film's going to be ugly. We're going to watch the video today. And uh, we'll go back to work for game two. I thought it was really interesting last night, guys. You you know, Jesse, off the top of the question, you mentioned the heat culture. Mm -hmm. Eric Spolstra last night questioned the effort of his team. Interesting. Right? Like, you, you can talk about a lot of things as a coach, but once you start questioning manhood, that's when players push back, except... Dudes have bought in. And, and, you know, Spolster's line was, I just didn't like our disposition in the first half. Um, you know, he said, I, I, I didn't like our toughness in the first half. And he said, we're at our best when we're doing really, really difficult mm-hmm. things, really, really tough things. And he said his team didn't have that in game one.
1: Let's see if they do in game two. And that plays into the the culture because when it's coming from Eric Spoelstra, who has had so much success and he's worked his way up through the ranks to become a head coach and then win multiple NBA championships and you have the guy, the godfather, so to speak, at the absolute top in Pat Riley, like doesn't that carry a different sort of weight when you have a head coach and uh, someone at the top of the food chain who have both accomplished so much in the league?
3: Yeah. I mean, The resume's on the fingers, Jesse. What we say about Jokic earlier in the conversation, um, Spolstra's earned this. Like, think about it. Spolstra, as an assistant, won with Shaq and D-Wade. As a head coach, won with LeBron, Bosch, and D-Wade. And as a head coach, got to a finals with Jimmy in the bubble, and now he's back. I also wonder where's the pushback going to come when you have six undrafted, seven <laughs> undrafted free agents on your team. But, you know, one thing Spolstra says, and the guys buy in, namely Jimmy Buckets, he said, this isn't for everybody. Matter of fact, he says, this bleep isn't for everybody. Um, like, you got to fit in or get the hell out of here. So dudes uh, dudes know what they're signing up for when they uh, when they show up to the Heat.
0: You know, and Jamie wasn't great for a couple games late in that Celtics series, but ultimately yeah. did what he needed to do to pull them over the top. One thing that no one's talking about last night is that the Heat shot a perfect 100% from the free throw line, albeit that's two right. from two. Yep. Arash, how do you, how does Denver defend well, limit Butler to 13 points and get two fouls only in the in the like that, That's like a magic trick.
3: Well. If you have the box score in front of you, Mike, yeah. bring up what Caleb Martin's line was and bring up what Max Strus's line was.
0: Yeah, one of seven and 0 for 10. Sure. So, so there you go.
3: There you go. And <laughs> what we just talked about, the mid-range game, what we just talked about, Jokic not forcing something that's not there, Denver was willing to get to the basket. Denver was willing to muck it up. Denver was willing to get pull-ups going. Miami was so reliant on the three point shot. So, where are your fa- you know, free throw opportunities going to come from? Um, especially when you're not hitting those shots. And for the most part, they were uncontested rebounds. So, I know a lot of people are running Miami off, and Denver's the far superior team. I just can't remember the last time the Heat played that poorly. And what lost by was it 12 or 14 or something. Um, Miami can't be that bad in game two. They just can't like they no showed the first half. They were down by what? 24 at some point that, that just, that just can't happen again. So, you know, at some point, some of those guys are going to make their shots. And at some point there's going to be an adjustment in terms of going at the nuggets bigs, but, that's that's why there's only two free throws on the box score.
0: Well, it feels like Jimmy could only be better. The Heat could only be better than what we saw, and it's probably still not going to be enough because Denver's just that damn good. Arash, you're there rubbing shoulders at some of the biggest media members in the NBA <laughs> and all that sort of thing. Any kind of chat or buzz about all the coaching moves? Because we're just looking at the Raptors today with Frank Vogel heading to Phoenix. They are the only team without a coach, and um, I just wonder what the buzz is around that team, if there's anything that uh, you've heard in terms of what's happening in our city here.
3: Yeah, nothing about the Raptors. Adam Silver spoke yesterday, and uh, much of the conversation there was around John Moran. Yeah, And the league has come to a decision. Uh, they've completed their investigation. They're going to announce it after the finals just to uh, try not to take any attention away from this, but probably isn't going to be Good news for John Moran. Um, but no, very little conversation on the Raptors side. It's interesting. I mean, look, you can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time, but over the last week, Masai Ujiri's been in Rwanda. He was in Ottawa yesterday with Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, I do wonder what's going on there. It's a, and, very,
0: yeah, it's a very bizarre situation, but um, I, think, I think it signifies two things. One is Toronto's not the number one destination compared to the other teams. And there's some pretty... Big teams with great rosters. Well, maybe available, not.
3: Maybe they right? just don't want to recycle guys who've just. All we've seen right now is a change of laundry among NBA coaches.
0: Well, exactly, and they're not like a team that's going to win next year. So you don't just shuffle in a holes or a, a Doc Rivers. I think they have the time and the space to be a little more creative with their with their search.
3: Unless there's a member of Miami or Denver staff that they have their eye on too.
1: Arash, you mentioned the John ja Morant uh, situation and, and Adam Silver announcing that the NBA had made a decision, but they're going to wait until the finals. Were you surprised that he brought it up in that way and then didn't say what the punishment was? Because it seems to me well, like... He you didn't
3: don't, bring it up, Jesse. Well, He, he was, was, at, he was, he was asked, obviously. He was, yeah.
1: at, he was asked. But it, it seems like even answering that question in that respect, it seems like that's just giving it a little bit more oxygen to... Uh, over the course of the finals for people to almost speculate as to what the punishment is going to be as opposed nah. to just getting it out there?
3: I don't know. I mean, I put my PR, PR director hat on. <laughs> what, what's the answer that you're supposed to provide otherwise?
1: Yeah. I guess it's, I guess it's a tough one anyway you slice it. And, you can't say no comment.
3: Mm-hmm. You don't want to announce what it is. You want to let everybody know that this has been top of mind and we've been on it, but this is the moment for the players who've worked so hard to get their moment in the sun. Morant's suspended by the Grizzlies anyway. He can't take part in any team activities. He can't even enter the facility. So it's not like anything's – there's no competitive advantage here for any other team by Morant being able to use their resources. So at this point, it's, you know, what's the difference if we announce it June 2nd or June 22nd.
1: Okay, uh, shifting gears quickly. I, I know that you're in, in Denver and uh, following the series. I, I'm watching last night and I see Charles Barkley and I think it was maybe Grant Hill with uh, oxygen masks on because the altitude, <laughs> I've never been to Denver personally, but do you think that it still plays a factor when the road team comes into a situation like Denver and they have to deal with the altitude and maybe aren't as acclimated to to that environment as Denver is?
3: No, no. I wonder what Charles had been up to the night before that he needed some oxygen. So you're, so you're, <laughs>
1: so you're not walking around Denver and, and feeling the fact that the altitude's up there?
3: I, I, I'm standing on the corner of Colfax yeah. Avenue and Race Street right now. <laughs> and along the wall, there is a big painted mural of Jokic and Jamal Murray. And my feature for Sportsnet tonight is on Murray. That is our background, and I will not be having any oxygen <laughs> uh, so masks on in my stand-up. I, yeah. I am not part of Channel 2 Action News. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and I'm not Charles Barkley. So. Well, we Although th- I, wish I, had, I wish I had Chuck's bank
0: account. i <laughs> yeah. that, Jesse. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? We thank you for taking a breath with us, Arash. Enjoy game uh, two. Thanks for joining us. Come on. That was pretty good. All right, uh, fellas. Have a good one. There we go, Zarash Madani at the NBA finals. You know what? A lot a lot was made out of game 1. The Nuggets can go and crush them in game 2 and it doesn't matter. Like the Heat could in in theory go home and win their games. Like it's a long series. So 100%. Lot, so on one hand last night I was like I cannot see a situation where Miami wins this championship. But at the same time, even even to zip. I mean that happened with the Nuggets and the Suns. They were up to nothing, then mm-hmm. it was tied. When each way, game five like you really gotta wait till game five or six to know exactly what's going on. And I just think Jimmy always has something that you don't exactly. see coming. Just think back to the the series against the Celtics. Like they played really, really well for three
1: games and then couldn't close it out. And it got really sketchy there near the ending. But when they needed to rise to the occasion, the Miami Heat were able to do that. We remember back to game seven, that was the Caleb Martin game. So right. as a rash was saying You go through the box score, a lot of those guys who have been major contributors for the Miami Heat so far in this postseason did not have a good game one. But it's just one. It's just one game. Yes, you can make a lot about the gulf between the the talent, so to speak, because at the end of the day, it is a one seed in Denver in the West and an eight seed that almost didn't make the playoffs in the Miami Heat. So, yes, there's a talent gap, but there was also a talent gap between Boston and Miami and
0: look what happened there. Just kind of reflecting on what Arash was talking about, the whole thing about the, you know, the John Morant suspension. Mm-hmm. Listen, I get it that there's only so much you could say. But the fact that he punted this till after the finals tells me one thing. It's big, man. Yeah, that's it's why. If it was a small thing, you do it before the finals and you, you sort of get that out of the way. Now it's like Adam Silver is going to have his own show. The decision too. <laughs> how many games does Morant get? Yeah. Right? Like, doesn't it, like, it strikes me that this is starting point is like a half a season or something. Like, think about it. He wouldn't do that if he's getting 10 games.
1: Yeah. Another point from that press conference in that within that answer, Adam Silver said that other stuff with regards to the Morant situation had come to light that maybe it complicated things. So it certainly does feel like, and I know Brian Windhorst, has mentioned this, that it's probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, like, 25 to 50 games for the punishment. And that's the point I was trying to make to Arash. It's like, yes, you're getting asked the question, so you have to have some sort of response prepared. And clearly he did have a response prepared. But now all the talk shows down south and we're speculating about what the suspension is going to be, and it just feels like had you provided the number in the moment, they would spend one day saying, okay, John Morant's gone for this amount of time. We know that now, and we can all move on and focus on the finals instead of dragging this thing out over the course of the finals and then whenever they actually announce it. I find that a very
0: difficult subject to discuss because it's all about morality. Mm-hmm. And then you got to take something like morality and so many things that are subjective, and then you have to put like a clinical game number to it. You know what I mean? So it's like someone punches someone in the face. You'll be like, Well, what do you normally get when you punch someone in the face? Two games. Well, maybe based on the fact he's a second-time offender, we're going to go three. Like, there's always a precedent. But there's no, like, hey, you know, like what happened the last time someone waved a gun on Instagram? Oh, they got 20 games, so now we're going to go 25. Right. Like, if you say, if you'd ask someone on the street, here's what Morant's done, what should he get? Ten people probably give you a spread of ten different answers. Like, you just don't know. Where to start? Like I've heard people say twenty games is ridiculous; it's too much. I've heard some say half a season is a starting point. It's a very difficult thing to actually try to nail down, and that's the weird part. You have to take this thing, that's not uh, easy, and actually put a put a put a value on it, and then it gets like it's going to inevitably be compared if it's a huge one. Well, was this worse than Malice in the Palace? Mm-hmm. Was this worse than you know, then you get to look at other big time suspensions. It's very tricky to sort of thread that needle.
1: It's incredibly difficult and uh, another challenging decision for Adam Silver to make because it's a it's a real life thing that is equated in in games, like you said, which is which yeah. is just so weird. So I I mean a, a really really uh difficult decision. And it comes down to like there's differing opinions on whether you think As an NBA player, you have some sort of responsibility to represent the brand. At the end of the day, the employer is the NBA. John Morant is employed by that, by his team and by the league, right? Uh, So it comes down to how you view your responsibility and whether you feel the need to be a role model, so to speak. I'm putting quotes in the air because I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. believe that all athletes need to necessarily be role models. But maybe Adam Silver doesn't think the same way as me. Maybe he thinks... That what John Morant did went way too far for his liking and now is going to have to put a major, major, set a major precedent in a number of games, which is it's hard to wrap your head around that John Morant could potentially be gone for half a season
0: here at least. And it's not even the what. Sometimes it's the how. So this is not a direct comparison. But you ever caught yourself on social media about to hit the button that says tweet or post and then stop yourself? And oh, it's, it happens to me all the time. And and I find myself doing it more often, saying, who's this benefiting? Like, Mm -hmm. what am I doing? And at the end of the day, if you work for a company like ours, for example, like if we're on Twitter, like we're representing the fans, Sportsnet, Rogers, that sort of thing, you can't be dumb about what you post and tweet out. Mm -hmm. And you can't just say, well, I just want to speak my mind and I'm going to cry for freedom of speech. Like You still have to be smart about it. (laughs) And with a lot of these athletes, so we're talking about what Morant's done, We're talking about Anthony Bass we saw from earlier this week. At the end of the day, you do represent a bigger company, a bigger brand out there than yourself. And you just got to be smart about how you use that time. So regardless of what's done, like I almost look past that and just say, why, why do it in the first place? Yeah. Right. So I've no, so like the rules, like you may not like it, but if you're an athlete, mm -hmm. like that's part of it. You're like representing yourself. You represent your team. You represent your city. You represent the league, and and to be ignorant of that, mm-hmm. you know, to me, I have zero sympathy. Yeah, and you hope he he's learned his lesson because you look at the chain of
1: events. You do it once, okay. You do it twice. There's obviously there a, a lack of responsibility and a lack of accountability, and that's something that John Morant is is going to have to confront. So obviously, you know, you, you hope for for the best. I hope for the best for everybody, and you hope that he, John Morant gets the the support and the the help that it he needs when. uh,
0: Seems like he's going to have some, some time to do
1: that next uh, season for sure.
0: Later tonight, it's Bassett and the Jays at the Mets. Before that, it's Blair and Barker from 5-7. to seven. Before that, Julia Kreutz will break down where we are at with the Jays as we head into the month of June. Questions about Vladdy, questions about Manoa, and a very thin lineup. All of that's coming up as the fan drive time continues. Sports in 590, The Fan.
4: More Leafs, more Raptors, more Blue Jays. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Sportsnet 590 The Fan. This is The Fan Drive Time. Mike Gentile, Jesse Rubinoff, one segment left. Show flew by. Always, buddy. One segment left. That is right. Jays versus Mets tonight. Blair and Barker follow our show from 5 to 7 on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and on Sportsnet 360 and then obviously the game tonight on Sportsnet. Pleased to be joined by Julia Kreutz from MLB.com. Julia, good evening to you.
4: Hi guys, uh, how's it going? It's going
0: pretty good. You know, I was kind of thinking about this. I talked to Ben Nicholson Smith about it's so difficult to analyze a baseball team day to day because you'll drown so fast. It's <laughs> it's such a long, long season. You know, like even stuff like last year, Bo Bichette was struggling and looked bad. Not in June. Not in, it was mid-August, and then he turned around. So it's a it's a it's a long season. So I think the best way to look at it is sort of month by month. April was promising. May was somewhat miserable, even though they swept the Braves in that month, and that was kind of impressive. So just sort of an overall view, where are we at with this team as we head into June?
4: Yeah, I would even go as far as to say that uh, you can't really look at at the month by month, right? Because things do change uh, very quickly, and you know, it's a tale of two months for the Blue Jays this year. April was very impressive, and in May we saw... Uh, some issues uh, appear and what I would say the way that I tried at least to look at a long baseball season is you sort of see traits or you see characteristics that start to emerge and that is through the bad times and through the good times and that's how maybe you can piece together the identity of of a team. Uh, I think that what we're seeing from the Blue Jays is uh, an extremely aggressive lineup here that can hit top to bottom and that. Obviously, every lineup will have its off days and, and, and days where things aren't going as well, but this is a team that can uh, hit for, and hit for power and 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 reach base in that sense. So if things are going poorly or things are going well, you can expect that from this Blue Jays team. When you look at the rotation, uh, you can expect Kevin Gosman to be the ace, to be the the stopper, while also looking for signs of... You know, what, is, what are Alec Manoa's issues? Are we really just looking for strikes? Is, is he really trying to be too fine? And is that what's causing him issues? So instead of taking it maybe uh, from a time perspective, I, I would say look more for the emerging details, and that will give you somewhat of a good sense of, of what a team can do.
0: So, Julia, sometimes it's what do you do with blank? And there's options. <laughs> and it's not... All X's and O's because there's the politics behind it. For example, Bobasek gets dropped to seventh in the order last year. He was cheesed off about it. I am still I still think he's probably not crazy about it today. It kind of worked. You know, to do that with someone like a Vlad, my goodness, can you do that and get away with it? Can you send Manoa down but what it's gonna be like for a guy that was almost up for Cy Young, now he's wearing a Bison's jersey? Can you tell Varsho he's gotta catch more? Mm-hmm when he seems under the impression it's more of an emergency situation so maybe weigh in a little bit about sort of the decision making when you got to add in there's like political parts of it too
4: yeah that that is the probably what makes the job of a manager more challenging it's not you know just showing up in the dugout and the, and watching the game or pep talking your players there's a lot of personality management as well that that goes into that uh, John Schneider obviously has experience with a lot of these guys. He managed a lot of them in, in, in the minors. And I do wonder, you know, if that made him a little bit bolder when it was time to uh, put the shed down a little bit last year and see what, what happened. There's a, there's a built in trust there because of those years in the minors. Uh, but there's, you know, a lot that you can't really predict. There's a lot that you have to count on uh, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, the understand say the understanding of the players, but 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 there's certainly a an aspect of that too, and that's where trust comes in between a manager and his team, and that's what, the line that John Schneider needs to sort of navigate here. Uh, I do believe that you know he's a guy that will do whatever he and his coaching staff uh, deem appropriate or or most effective for this team. But it's uh, especially in the Blue Jays in the situation that the Blue Jays find themselves now, with the way that May went, there there are some tough decisions that are coming, mm-hmm. and you also need to have the confidence to uh, to make those decisions. So that will definitely be something um, to observe because it seems like you know Toronto has tried the wait and see approach that may not necessarily be working. So tough decisions ahead, and John Schneider will certainly have to you know show. Um, that confidence and that trust to to make those decisions.
1: Well, when you talk about the tough decisions ahead, I don't think there's a bigger decision than what the Blue Jays should do with Alec Manoa at this current point in time. We talked about how we shouldn't necessarily look at the season in months, but you look at Manoa's month, April was bad. And unfortunately he was worse in the month of May. Uh, His last two starts, he's gone three and four innings respectively, eight walks combined uh, this is no longer a, a trend that's working in Alec Manoa's favor. Uh, what do the Blue Jays do with someone who was a Cy Young finalist last year? It's not unprecedented in this organization, but it's obviously a massive, reaching a massive turning point here.
4: Yeah, I mean, sending him down would be drastic, I believe, right? And it would be seen as a drastic move in in whatever way you slice it. I, I believe that Manoa right now does need a reset. Uh, it seems like, you know, as much as you can point to physical attributes that may not be working for him, it does seem that there is a mental aspect mm-hmm. to his struggles as well. You don't see an Alec Manoa as confident as he was last season. Perhaps he is struggling with the pitch clock. We don't really uh, know, you know, what what goes on in a, in a pitcher's head when he's on the mound, but it's very clear that he's taking his time with, uh, with the pitch clock and we're, other pitchers have found a way to turn that into a weapon when they're on the mound. Manoa seems to be struggling, right, to sort of accept that, to accept that there is a, maybe a limit to disengagement. We all know that he was a guy that liked to walk around last year and really play those mind, mind games with the hitters. He can't do that as much uh, this year. And so it seems like what Manoa needs is a reset. Will that come um, by sending him down to Triple A? I don't know. I would probably say no, because just because of of how we have perceived Alec Manoa so far. He is a guy that relies very deeply on confidence, and I'm just not sure that a move to AAA will do anything to help with that. But it is undeniable that the Blue Jays need to make a decision and just let Alec Manoa breathe for a little bit. uh, Just take a step back and, and look at his game and look what he's what he's capable of doing so that he can return to form.
0: You know, and we're on the line with Julia Kreutz from MLB.com and our good buddy Kevin Barker has referred to this lineup sometimes as incomplete. And I and I and I agree they feel thin. They they haven't made up a lot of the home runs they've given up in in moves in the last couple of years. And so there's only two ways around it. You either bring in someone who brings more home runs with them, which I don't see happening, or the people you have hit more and I'm talking more about Vladdy Guerrero. Any idea or, or any theories, because this is kind of the, the mystery that no one can answer, about the, just a the lack of production at home. We're just coming off of another series, another back on the road tonight. But any theory on why there's been such a struggle at Rogers Centre?
4: Yeah, that's an interesting one, and it wasn't the case necessarily last year, right? You saw a guy like Matt Chapman absolutely dominate at Rogers Centre. It hasn't been the case this year. Uh, the Blue Jays went on a, a pretty unique run at home to start the year. I believe it was their best 14-game uh, start at home. Uh, so things were going well. And again, you know, it was a tale of two months. April was great and, and May was not. Uh, and it seems like it, it may have been – it may be, you know, just an adjustment period. The Blue Jays were far from, from Roger Center for, for a big chunk of time to start the year. Uh, the schedule has been tough. There's no denying that. It, I will say that it is uh, pretty puzzling to me that Vladdy has yet to homer mm-hmm. uh, at, at home this year. It's just, it, it is weird that we're entering June and that hasn't happened yet. Oddities, right? The baseball season is, is filled with them, but you know, it may be that in June, the Blue Jays go on a big run at home and, and we're having a different conversation by the end of the month. It's, it's just one of those things. It's very, very difficult to put your finger on it, but it may be strength of schedule. It may be that. Some of the new new guys are still getting used to their surroundings, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. keeps working on his swing.
0: Julia Kreutz on the line. Before we let you go, we'd be remiss if we didn't say you had a phenomenal tweet earlier this week. It was motivated, obviously, by the Anthony Bass story, but it's more in light now, especially with the start of Pride Month, and I just thought it was a a very interesting and honest way to talk about Mm -hmm. the situation, and we appreciate it and and, uh, admire the honesty uh, for what you uh, did to put yourself out there. Seconded here, Julia.
4: <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, let's all just work on a, a more inclusive, more accepting, and more loving world.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the big game tonight against the Mets. Thank you.
4: Appreciate you.
0: No problem. There she is, Julia Kreutz. Uh, it, it's it's fascinating to me when you talk about the Blue Jays, and I know
1: that we've had this conversation before that when this particular team is losing, they're, they're, they're professionals, right? But they kind of look stiff. And the big yeah. issue last year was, oh, the home run jacket. They're having far too much fun. When they lose, it looks dumb. And it, it's just the the juxtaposition of these two teams, last year's version and this year's version, is so fascinating to me because – You'd like them to almost loosen up a little bit when they're losing, but we can't have everything. They approach it from a very professional perspective this so time funny. around.
0: When you play loose and you win, you're like, you know that team? They look I like know. they're having a lot of fun out there. It's When you play loose and you lose, you're like, you know what? They're just immature. Basically, at the end of the day. And this year, now they're, they're playing tight. If they win, it's like business like a Right. Every winning these, cures these everything. These guys coming, they come to the office prepared to work. When they lose, <laughs> you're like, Oh, they look
1: stiff all of a sudden. What's wrong with these guys? Uh, it's like you're you're missing to Oscar Hernandez's smile and Lourdes Goriel's hair. It's like, oh, like we we need that back now. But no, it's it's, it's it, like you said, baseball is long. Yeah. Teams are going to lose games, and it's not going to look pretty when they
0: lose all the time. That's the reality. Fans weird when they see people have fun. It kind of bothers them when things aren't going well. Mm-hmm. It's like you ever gone somewhere to get, like, fast food or a coffee or something, and they're either they mess up the order or they're taking too long, and you're frustrated, and then they're, like, giggling in the back. Yeah, well, this happened to me right? too and often, mad, I care to admit. Right, too and you're much like, fast food. hey, they're not taking it as seriously <laughs> as I am. Like, I'm serious about this order, but they can care less. Yeah. I find sports fans do that when they watch someone at first base talk to the first baseman or they watch a lot of like high fives in the NBA and that sort of thing. When they see a lot of like fun, people get really annoyed because they look at it like, hey, this is business, this is work, but it's also sports. So do you find you watch stuff more from a stressful eye or more from a fun eye? Oh, I think growing up. an all business guy? Or no, growing, growing up,
1: I was, I was definitely, I think, uh, more stressed about being a fan. I mean, you you shorten fan is short for fanatic, right? And that's, that's basically where it comes from. And you want your fan base to be emotional. You want that, you want the investment and you want people to support your team. Uh, so for me, I was like that growing up, but I I think being in the business sort of changes your perspective a little bit. You don't always look at it from the same perspective. So now I kind of watch it and, and you, you mature a little bit. Like I realize now when, when a baseball season's ongoing, I realize you know, it's 162 games. Like, the Toronto Blue Jays are going to lose their fair share of games. The Tampa Bay Rays are going to lose their fair share of, ga- share of games. That's just how it goes. So you have to sort of take a deep breath. And pick your and, poison. And like, and pick if your, the Jays yeah.
0: can't beat Verlander tonight, like, like, you shouldn't lose sleep over it. But if they make, you know, tons of errors and base running mistakes and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. then you could be back to being angry. And it's,
1: so, it, it's not to say that they don't have issues on this team. Like, there are significant issues that they need to be sorted. Like, Manoa is a real issue. They got to figure exactly. that out. And the pitching depth uh, beyond uh, Kikuchi, like Mitch White, still in rehab and uh, on a rehab assignment, and the other names that are available, Casey Lawrence, you know, you want Thomas Hatch to start. Like, the, they're not the most inspired. So, this team does have uh, concerns, and there are things that need to be addressed. But at the end of the day, it's a long season. The cream should rise. And this is
0: a talented team that I think. By and large, is going to be okay moving forward? Not great, not terrible. You know what that sounds like? A 500 season. Yeah. At least to this point. Like, they're, they're, like you play what your record is, right? Okay, where, where did you draw that line? We were talking about this earlier. Mm-hmm. In terms of people getting upset, even about, like, the Kyle Dubas stuff. And the difference between being passionate and being angry. I, th- I think those are two completely different things being passionate and being, what would you say you are as a sportsman? You ask me, what are you? No, I mean, I'm passionate. I'm I'm into stuff, but I'm like a realist. I'm not going to get, like, that upset. So, like, a GM leaving, like, there's always someone else. Like, <laughs> you could like your manager. You could like your coach. There's always someone else that can do it. So, I'm going to be choosy about losing sleep over if, yeah. oh, this GM left or not. Like, at the end of the day, there's always somebody else. I think they're all-, all replaceable, so it's... You know, being, being passionate is one thing, but, like, the anger, betrayal, <laughs> this guy's a fraud, like, freaking out about it. It's like, dude, it's like the GM of a team. Like, most,
1: yeah, most fan bases are, are similar, but I, I do think there's something with the Toronto Maple Leafs fan base and everything that the Leafs have been through. And I think when you look at the Dubis tra- tree Living situation, this fan base invested a lot in Kyle Dubas and grew along with Kyle Dubas. At the beginning, you weren't sure what he was going to give you. He was an analytical mind. He was young. He was fresh. But a lot of people weren't on board with what he brought to the table. And then you fast forward a number of years, and while the progress hasn't been the progress that most fans would have wanted, you did sort of grow alongside him. You saw that he was able to mature in his role. So then the move, I think, when he's now gone, you sort of look at him and you're like, well, we spent all this time investing our emotions in Kyle Dubas and in this team only to fall short and win one playoff series over his whole tenure. Like, now we have to start again? Like, that's feels like you're taking a number of steps back when in reality, we had this conversation in the first block. I don't really know if they're in a better place, worse place, no. same place. I'm not sure it matters, but when there's change, people don't like change, and they feel like they've invested in, in the previous management.
0: No, I look at it, this is a weird take, but... Um... I can care less for the GMs of teams at times. I care about what they do. I care about the players, how they perform. I care that someone is confident that they can do it, but I'm not going to live and die with that person as an individual. Mm-hmm. Like, like, no one's walking with, like, a Dubas jersey on the back of their, <laughs> on, <laughs> so, so let me their ask this, when they're, you know, when they're at the arena.
1: So let me ask you this. Then. When you evaluate a team's performance, like you look at the, the Leafs situation specifically, yeah. uh, I, for one, look at their team and the way they were constructed. Favorites. To win the cup after the first round. I think Kyle Dubas did a, a very good job. So does your, when you, when you evaluate a team, are you looking squarely at the players if you say you don't really care who the GM is?
0: No, I mean, it's, it's a, sort of a chicken and egg thing. On one hand, he did what he could. This year, the players didn't execute. Mm-hmm. So that's their issue. So you can't put it on him if Matthews has no goals against yeah. Florida, right? You could put it on him if they didn't have enough depth on defense or if they didn't have, you know, if they had squeaky goaltending or that sort of thing, like you could, you could put that on him. It's sort of a chicken and egg thing, but I just think in terms of being committed to like that person and, and being that fired up about it, if he's ultimately not going to be here, just make sure the next person is somewhat competent and let's go. Yeah. You know, so for people that just, just to be there, like they were more angry at Kyle Dubas yesterday than they were looking ahead at what tree living is going to maybe do with the leaves. I just found that interesting. So Few minutes left. It's our last call by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. We were talking Jays for a bit. I tell you, if you like Chris Bassett going against his old team in his old park, a lot of value. One seventeen. The Mets with Verlander on the hill are minus one thirty four.
1: Verlander's been kind of inconsistent so far in his new surroundings, and a little bit of a disappointment for the the New York Mets, who who the team feels like they're. They spent so much money. We're talking about money in the open. They spent so much money, and it's they just haven't been able to get there since uh, Steve Cohen's been able to take over. But uh, I look at Bassett, and I think there's value there. The track record this season has been good. The first impression was terrible. Remember the first impression? The first game, homer after homer after homer. And then the last start wasn't so good. But by and large, he's been
0: a model of consistency. So over he had the that, season that great series. scoreless streak uh, yes. a couple weeks back to that. Looked pretty fantastic. Okay. Nuggets game two, they're up one, nothing in the NBA finals, that game Sunday at 8 PM. They're favored by eight and a half over the heat. Eight and a half is a big, what number. do you think? Do they go up to no, zip?
1: I think eight and a half is a big number. We talked about the, the golf in talent, which there is, but I think a point. When we were talking to him about the the role players on the Heat and how they had such a terrible shooting night, and that's part of why I asked about the the oxygen uh, levels in in Denver and the altitude, because it, I think there is a bit of an adjustment period there, and Denver is is used to it. I think there's a regression to the mean eventually here with the Miami Heat and the players that didn't hit shots will hit shots. It's a make or miss league, so I I like the the Heat there at that number. He said eight point five. That's right, eight and a half.
0: Yeah, eight and a half. Okay, let's go to the Stanley Cup Finals, which starts uh, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. You can see it on Sportsnet and CBC. Vegas Golden Knights favored minus 130, Panthers plus 112 in game one. That kind of makes sense.
1: You know where I sit on this. You know we're rolling with the momentum, baby. It's Sergei, It's the Sergey Bobrovsky show. I mean, Vegas has something there clearly with the depth. The depth is superior. And it's almost a – you could – Almost draw a di- direct line from the Vegas Golden Knights and Florida Panthers to the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat. There should be a gulf in talent there. The depth should be greater in Vegas. But the I think the X factor for Florida is Sergey Bobrovsky. As much as Aiden Hill has been great so far for Vegas, you sort of trust Bobrovsky a little bit more just based on his track record and the Veznas and all that. So...
0: Well, if you're Give thinking Panthers. Yeah, if you're thinking sweep in that series, which I don't think is gonna happen, but uh, under four and a half games is plus six hundred. But maybe the best thing is to take the series to go seven games plus two oh five, if you're a fan of that. That
1: would be great for us. Like there's We'd gonna have gonna stuff be to seven, talk about.
0: Yeah, there's gonna be seven two one games. <laughs> Probably.
1: But they're they're both really entertaining teams to watch play. Like fast on the attack, crazy four checks. Uh, the one that caught my eye in terms of odds, the con Smythe. I was just going there next. Yep. Because Sergey Bobrovsky, even though the Panthers are not favored to win this series, he's obviously the favorite to he's win the, the favorite to win the Consmite trophy. And you go back to JS Shiger in 2003, when the Anaheim Ducks lost uh, the Stanley cup final, but J. S. Shiger won the Consmite trophy that year. He was, re- and I went back and looked at his numbers, Bobrovsky doesn't have JS Shiger numbers, but they're getting pretty close. And if he has the ability to hold Vegas at bay, if every game is going to be a two-one game, like you said, yeah. and maybe it goes seven and Vegas wins, there's an outside chance here that Sergey Bobrovsky is able to take home the con even if even if the Florida Panthers yes, lose, lose a, this a close
0: series. So he's a favorite at two fifteen. Jack Eichel plus three seventy five, tied with Matthew Kachuk in that sense. Aiden Hill, by the way, plus a thousand. You know he's had a great run so far. I I still think. It's going to be someone else. If it's Vegas, it's going to be a score like an Eichel, but uh, that'll be interesting.
1: It's so. sneaky here because the best players, clearly you look at these at this odds board, Bobrovsky, Jack Eichel, Matthew Kachuk, Jonathan Marchessault, William Carlson, all players that you would think need to be the best and they have been the best for both teams.
0: Okay, last word. Give us uh, your pick to uh, win the cup and in how many games?
1: Give me the Panthers in
0: seven. Panthers in seven. I'll go Panthers as well. I'll go really? six games. Six games. I mean, just keep it going and they can wrap it up at home. I mean, if they're gonna win it, they're gonna be in it from, from the start. It's not gonna be like a 3-1 coming. shot OT, probably. Thank you to Sean Gentili, Arash Madani, and Julia Kreutz for David Sis and Derek Brandale. We thank you very much. Thank you, Jesse Rubinoff.
1: Pleasure as always. First Mike. appearance thank on you.
0: the fan drive time. And now I get to get in the car and watch and listen to Blair Barker. Coming up next, this is the this is Sportsnet 590, the fan.